to the Blue Collar Zen Podcast, recorded here at the Detroit Zen Center. Welcome back to the Blue Collar Zen Podcast. And first, we would like to um, apologize for the long gap um, between today's story and our last podcast. So this story is uh, takes place about 1,500 years ago in South Korea and tells uh, the tale of a monk whose name is Layman Pusol. He's a monk who became a layman. And uh, our abbot, Hwalsan Sunim, and I will read the story and then uh, have a conversation about it. And even though it's 1,500 years old, I think uh, some of the, uh, the texture of this story is um, relevant as much today as it was then. Enjoy. Huangzi was the son of Mr. Chen. He was born in 647 CE in the village of Hyanga, which was located south of the capital of Shilla, current day Gyeongju. He was different from other children. Often he would be found gazing at the western sky for hours, oblivious that the sun was setting or deep in the bushes sitting quietly. It hurt him deeply to see any animal killed or slaughtered, but it made him very happy to see Buddhist monks. He would enjoy following them around. At the age of five, when all his friends were playing with toys, Kwangze entered Pulguk Sa Temple, shaved his head under priest Wanjang, at seven, when children of his age were playing bamboo horse, he set to studying Buddhist scriptures. His Dharma name became Pusol, floating snow. His resolve to follow the way of Buddha was as penetrating as the cold frost and as noble as the lofty pine. His morality, pure and untainted, shone like a clear lake in moonlight, and his mind was quiet and unperturbed. As he became refined in his training and in his Buddhist knowledge slowly increased, all expected a great spiritual career from him. However, he felt like a gourd vine or a cucumber plant that is expected to bear many fruits, but is fixed where it grows. He disliked ties and attachments. So he cut himself free from his promised spiritual career and expectations and set out on a journey with two companions, Young Jo and Young He. They had few desires and only wished to lead a simple and unencumbered life. The three of them were all mature in spiritual practice 
and good Dharma friends to boot. Their single purpose was to cultivate the way of Buddha. Their journey took them to the crown of heaven mountain. There they built a hut and lived on pine pollen and water. After three years of joy in samadhi and meditation, they moved to Cherry Mountains. They selected again a suitable place below the King of Dharma Peak and named it Wonderful Stillness to indicate their wish to enter the peaceful realm of meditation. They lived together there in complete silence. For ten years they lived this way. One day they each composed a poem in which they expressed the joy of their spiritual practice and lifestyle, free from illusion. Young Joe first recited his poem. The quiet place we occupied was but a hut in the tree-lined mountain pass. Oneness cultivated through meditation the ultimate way attained, rejoicing followed. Who will recognize the unearthed jade? The bird who picked a flower sings merrily by itself. Desolate and deserted, no affairs to attend to. The single taste of dharma penetrates my whole being. Next young he recited his. On the meditation hut of old pine trees, the moon shines as clouds disperse on the peak of joy. How often have I sharpened my wisdom sword? More than twice the origin of mind revealed itself. Though spring is yet early and desolate, Mountain birds twitter from early morning. All partake in the joy of the unborn. No need to break through the gate of the patriarchs. Finally, Pusol responded with the following poem. Practicing Dharma that transcended both stillness and emptiness, we lived together in a hut where clouds and cranes became our friends. Having realized the non-dual is no other than absolute liberation. Whom shall I ask the forward three-three, backward three-three? Leisurely, I look at the lovely flowers blooming in the garden. Unmindfully, I listen to the birds singing by the window. Enter the state of a Tathagata directly. Why trouble yourself piling up practice? With that completed, they left the Cherry Mountains. They recalled that Mount Ode was the sacred ground for Manjusri, the Bodhisattva of great wisdom, and they decided to make a pilgrimage there. On their journey northward, they stayed overnight at the house of Mr. No Foes and Resentment, 
who lived near White Lotus Pond in the district of Tunung, present-day Kimche, North Chola Province. Mr. No Resentment was a spiritual person who led a simple and clear life. He was a devoted follower of the way of Buddha, and so very glad he, to receive the three monks. He served them with care and respect and invited them to give him teachings on the Buddha Dharma. They stayed up late enjoying conversation. It started to rain the following morning as the three monks were preparing to continue their journey. Mr. No Resentment and his wife urged them to postpone their departure until the rain stopped. It continued to rain for the rest of that day and the next. When it finally stopped, the road was very wet and muddy and impossible to travel. So they stayed on a little more. However, the postponement of the journey for the three monks provided an excellent opportunity for Mr. No Resentment, who was most eager to learn as much as possible from them. He took full advantage of their stay and attended upon them. The three monks were all very moved at the sincerity of Mr. No Resentment and felt much obliged to give spiritual instruction to the best of their ability. Mr. and Mrs. No Resentment had a daughter. Her name was Wonderful Flower. She was 18 years old and beautiful, but she was mute. When she first heard Posol speak about Dharma, she started to cry uncontrollably. When she finally stopped, she was suddenly able to speak. Mr. and Mrs. No Resentment were amazed. They burst into tears and their joy was without bounds. She was their only child, and they were so concerned about her future since she was becoming an adult. But now she could speak. What a miracle. But another strange thing happened to their surprise. Wonderful flowers said aloud, I must marry Pusol. I must marry Pusol. We must become husband and wife. I will serve him forever in this life and after. Mr. and Mrs. No Resentment were very embarrassed at their daughter's behavior. They apologized to the monks and took their daughter to her room. They scolded her and said, These venerable monks are holy disciples of the way, and they have renounced the world in order to devote their lives to spiritual awakening. How dare you utter such nonsense to them? But Wonderful Flower repeated her demand dauntlessly, and she threatened to kill herself if her demand was not immediately met, and nothing would change her mind. The monks were about to leave, and Wonderful Flower became frantic. She ran to Pusol, threw herself on the ground, and held him tightly by the, by the leg. When her parents saw this, they went down on their knees before Pusol and entreated him to save their daughter. Pusol remained unmoved, but at this point he now realized that if he left, he would be hurting not one person, but three for Mr. and Mrs. No Resentment would not live long if anything disastrous happened to their daughter. He thought about his cultivation of the way. All along, his spiritual practice had been about himself, to free himself from all attachments in order to reveal the original mind. 
But now he was suddenly faced with creating a bond that would chain him to the world. He closed his eyes. He was full of doubt. There was this obstruction preventing him from advancing in his study. So he determined to leave with his Dharma friends and said that he could see through the illusory world to himself. But when he opened his eyes and he saw the three innocent faces of those kneeling before him, looking up at him intently as if he held the key to their future, he became confused. He thought about helping them without interrupting his spiritual training, but the only way to accomplish that was to combine a lay life with monastic training. So it suddenly dawned on him that that was exactly what a great many bodhisattvas before him had done and what he would have to do now. Wasn't it true that followers of the way seek enlightenment for the sake of all beings? Wasn't compassion supposed to be an integral part of the way of wisdom and enlightenment? Moreover, didn't the followers on the way take vows in order to commit themselves firmly to the spiritual path on behalf, on behalf of everyone? Oh, my vow is my path, he murmured to himself. And suddenly he became happy. With a huge smile on his face, he threw his arms in the air and began to dance around and around. Sensing that things would turn out okay, Wonderful Flower and her parents relaxed a little bit, but they still followed Pusol's move anxiously. Finally, Pusol turned to his friends, who were becoming impatient with him, and said, Well, my good Dharma friends, I bid you farewell. Have a good journey to Mount Odesan. I will stay here and marry Wonderful Flower. Please don't forget your friend in this world. When Wonderful Flower and her parents heard this, they were overjoyed. Wonderful Flower said, Thank you, Pusol, and she held his hand to her bosom and repeated, My beloved Pusol Sunam, my beloved Pusol Sunam. Pusol gave her a little hug. They already looked like a married couple. However, Pusol's two monk friends were very dismayed. Pusol had always been their role model in spiritual life and an inspiration to them. They were deeply upset and disappointed, and they tried to change his mind without success. The next day, they did decide to part, and they expressed their feelings to him in the following poems. Wisdom without morality results in an empty view. Incomplete compassion has snared you in lustful desire. Practice true wisdom and compassion and harmony. A way will eventually open up. The running clouds help the moon move. The wind will help you recognize the banners that hang high. If you so understand the way, you will remain unhindered. His second friend wrote, The basket of earth that helped build a high terrace is enough to bury a deep pond. One's practice should be as straight as splitting bamboo. Without whipping, it is difficult to attain the way. Unable to escape the karmic bonds of lifetimes, you entered the house of Mr. No Resentment. When someday you wish to pour your spilled water back into the jar, we will be together again. Pusal cried and thanked his friends and responded with his own poem. Enlightenment performs the unequaled according to equality. Awakening helps those with affinity in accord with non-affinity. Leave the conduct of one's life to truth. One's mind expands. 
The way of awakening attained through lay life sustains the body. A crystal in the hand can separate red and blue. The ignorant and the wise appear undisguised before the bright mirror. One must realize there is no hindrance in form or sound. No need to sit long in the mountain valleys. Upon this departure, they shared a pot of pine tea. The feelings were heavy. They were very close Dharma friends who had spent more than 15 years together training in the mountains. Yong Zhou and Yong He were very disappointed and did not approve of Pusol, but Pusol said warmly to his friends, The way is confined neither to the monks and the nuns or to the laity, nor is it confined to the quiet countryside or the noisy marketplace. The intention of all practitioners is to aid and benefit everyone in their pursuit of peace and happiness. My dear friends, please go. Travel widely. Train under different masters. In return here to awaken your old friend here without fail. Thus they parted. We will continue with the second part of the story of Pusal in the next podcast. Listen, what do you think of that story? Well, it's a you know it's a folk tale that is trying to share. Uh, something very profound uh, and there's going to be more coming in the next podcast but for this one what strikes me is the idea that we have about what's spiritual practice and what isn't mm. and I think in this day and age in particular uh, in our culture America, most people are going to practice as lay participants, married and unmarried. And uh, it's not any more special to be a monk or a nun. This is, again, just a choice people make the same way that people make choices to be married or to remain single and have a variety of relationships. But they're all avenues for spiritual practice. It's a matter of knowing how to go about it. Mm. So to some degree, I think Layman uh, Pusol was, now now Layman Pusol was becoming someone who be was beginning to recognize that. And that given the circumstances, uh, he felt that it would be not only uh, a way to continue a spiritual practice, but a way of aiding and abetting uh, three people that could end up suffering uh, severe consequences as a result of his refusal. Mm. Um, and I think that's the that element we call the bodhisattva path, where you give yourself up in, in the process of training, as part of training, to uh, save all beings, in this case, to uh, provide help for th these uh, three mm -hmm. uh, family members. So can we talk about the, you know, a big part of um, sort of Buddha Buddhist thought or Zen thought is the practice of indifference and the idea that you don't hold um, or kind of ride an emotional, uh, an emotional wave 
um, but you know be able to allow the wave the wave to rise and fall without sort of getting um, involved with it and and having an idea you know that things should go one way or another and so this story really challenges my my view of that because I guess I could you know present the argument that that Pusol was 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 affected and was um, was not indifferent, and so uh, I, there's another story that I have read read a long time ago of a monk in a similar situation who um, ignored uh, the suffering of the person in front of him in a similar way, and just continued on his path. And then the story sort of comes about to in the end the monk winds up getting a kind of a repercussion consequence consequence. And so I wonder if you could sort of open up our concept here, since mine seems to be a little limited, um, around what indifference means. And clearly it isn't a sort of a cold way of relating to human beings and their own uh, suffering. Well, I think that uh, it, my understanding of indifference is that uh, we... In the broadest sense, we uh, don't have highs and lows. We allow things to unfold, and we're indifferent toward them. In other words, we're not looking for highs, and as a result, we're also not going to experience lows. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is that when people experience their feelings, Having those feelings is a profound, I think, enriching experience for human beings. The difficulty is the holding of them. Mm. And so, that's where I think the indifferent, you're indifferent because it's a good feeling, it's a bad feeling, you're indifferent to both of them. So you may have a high. You allow them to unfold. So I think what I hear you saying is you'll have highs and lows, but they'll be, they'll be brief because you won't be hanging on to them. Correct. Okay, and and you're not hanging on to them because you're indifferent to the experience because you see it as uh, something uh, other than yourself. So it seems that you know this decision that Pusol made was really not about him, but what was in the best interest of the the people in this case, the people that were in front of him. And also, I think without. Uh, his his spiritual practice suffering. He he could have viewed this as a, an advanced state of training. Obviously, it's not easy to be in a marriage, and in this case, living with your mother, mother and father-in-law, and a wife who you've just met. But I think that's the kind of fearless Zen spirit that people have mm. to enter into it, knowing that, you know, uh, he could leave at any point. Right. The same way that he entered. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think it's also, you know, interesting, Sunan, that you, you bring up the point that it isn't necessary, you know, to do monastic training to be uh, to walk the path of awakening. And I wonder then what the point of 
of full-time or monastic training is. If it isn't necessary, then, then why do we have it? I didn't say that it, it was unnecessary. I said that it's not for everyone. Mm. Neither is marriage. Yeah. Neither is living single. Neither is living in Alabama versus California. Like, you, you have to find your way of practicing right where you stand. Yeah. It seems like the, the full-time or the monastic model just provides, you know, in a really basic sense, if you, t if you strip away all of the kind of exoticism, it's really just a, a context for um, focusing and training um, sort of without a lot of distraction on the path. Well, I think that's true. And also, in our life uh, of our Zen Center, what we want to try to orchestrate and have continued to try to orchestrate is what I refer to as a lay monastic community. Yeah. In other words, there are elements of monastic practice in what we do. But the people that are, do, are practicing here are not monks and nuns. They're largely lay people, married and unmarried, yeah. from all walks of life. Yeah. And I think there's a richness to that. Yeah. I think that's what was happening in ancient China before, uh, really before the advent of Buddhism, that, that artists, intellectuals, and uh, Taoists, uh, practitioners were meeting mm. in various ways. It could have been through marriages, it could have been through the arts, yeah. could have been through practicing meditation together, but that interaction was enriching the fabric of their lives. Yeah. And I think the same thing is possible in 2021. Yeah. But, but it has to be engaged. Yeah. So what you're saying is maybe before Buddhism became and even Zen became sort of institutionalized, there was more of a free flow um, of lifestyle? I think that's 100% correct. And I think when Buddhism, Zen in particular, is over-institutionalized, it, it's, it's, it's going to become, it's going to spoil. Mm. Like it should also, always remain uh, 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 free so the, the, the irony of entering a very rigid Zen center and that you, you're trying to be able to express your freedom yeah. uh, it doesn't seem to go together. Yeah. But the problem is that generally when we come to Zen, we don't come able to express our freedom. Yeah. We learn how to do that. In, in the Zen Center, and, and to the degree that's happening to the community, I think it's less and less institutional and more uh, just community-oriented, yeah. the, the richness of, of people getting together. Like I've been suggesting to uh, my students in the last uh, a few weeks that when you begin to grasp the conceptual framework of, of Zen practice, you should have exchanges with your Dharma brothers and sisters about it, not in order to convince them that you're right, but to exchange ideas about the way that you're seeing it. Yeah. Because not to have this conceptual framework, at the outset at least, uh, I think leads to 
overly institutionalized situations where the form becomes more important than the essence of Zen. And I've always been critical of that. Yeah, I appreciate that, Sunyam. I think that it, the story of, of Lehman Pusol, what comes up for me with this is that he kind of, even from a young age, it's described that he, I feel like it's, you know, to describe it this way is a little clumsy, but he was sort of, um, his karma was pretty clean and he easily gravitated toward the path of a monastic or you know a, a seeker, spiritual seeker, and seemed to be quite comfortable not engaging with the world and the so-called mess of, of the world and um, seemed pretty much at home and at ease in, in that life. And so what I, what I hear you saying is that in his own evolution, you know, personal evolution as a, as a, as a being, um, he clearly saw that it was important for him to uh, go beyond that, the kind of comfort of that, in a way. Well, in, in, in another way you could, that's true, and I think another way of looking at that is how wonderful it was for somebody to prepare themselves yeah. for what turned out to be their return to uh, the, kind of the marketplace, in this case, marriage, yeah. and living in a, in a household of four people, uh, and and how wonderful, which is what they were expressing, the yeah. wonder of having him in that community. It's kind of, they'll never call him exactly like their teacher, but what else could it be? Mm. Right. Whereas the his two compatriots are still trying to earn the, 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 the mind that would allow them to express it in ways that are different than, oh, they're doing conventional, this kind of Buddhist practice. Right. Well, there's nothing wrong with that either, right. but I think Lehman Pusal, and we, we don't know about the early years of the, his two compatriots, but we know that in his case, as you've laid out, that he had affinity for the spiritual path from a very, very young age. Yeah. And so now, who doesn't want to experience the world? Right. But usually in our culture, we experience the world and get all tangled up in it, and then we try to take up practice and we're carrying lots of baggage with us that, that wouldn't have been baggage if we'd have got ourselves straight first. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that is a, a really compelling argument for having um, the fabric of a culture be based in spiritual principles so mm. that from a young age people are sort of um, kind of saturated in that that uh, in their surroundings and then less likely to get all tangled up with you know chasing after money and fame and all of these things that that wind up you know giving you kind of leaving you pretty empty-handed at the end I think what I've seen at the Zen Center over the years is, you know, I feel very fortunate in that I started spiritual practice at a, at a pretty young age, and it seems like what I see happening is people do come after they've been kicked around by the world, and um, even though they may be very sincere and even desperate in some cases for spiritual salvation, there's almost kind of like a wound 
and they they first need time to kind of heal themselves before they can you know become people that are deeply concerned about others well-being or you know kind of stewards i would say that the, their first step is to to kind of to heal i wonder if you what you think about that well, I mean, certainly I don't think anyone could dispute the amount of healing that needs to go on for the level of, uh, let's, for lack of a better term, kind of a broad-reaching abuse that uh, we've had to undergo. And I'm not talking about, you know, like domestic violence or something. I'm talking about schools that don't actually address the, the young people as individuals that are kind of uh, that have the potential to learn and 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 just out of you know following a curriculum yeah. are dishing the same thing out to every person that comes and everybody gets out of the public schools and it's kind of like well yeah I had a few good teachers what I mean the, yeah. the, the time is ripe, they're young, they're eager to learn. Yeah. And if you've ever worked with uh, young people, uh, children especially like that, they're ready, they're sponges yeah. for what yeah. you have to offer. Yeah. But I don't think as adults, we've provided that yeah. in the way that was necessary. And so they're even healing from that. Right. I mean, notwithstanding this whole thing that we've let young people in college get into these enormous debts like right. that's abuse absolutely and and so getting over that paying it off is one thing but just th that that kind of effect that you, that you're I don't know how you separate. I'm in school it's costing me you know twelve fourteen thousand dollars a year yeah. uh, it just is something that <coughs> excuse me. We wouldn't fork out the money if we had it in our wallet for that. Well, I think what I hear you so saying... So we loan it to them. Yeah. Well, I think that what I hear you saying is that they're being victimized yeah. um, at an age when they really um, aren't able to stand on their own two mm -hmm. feet. So they do require um, society and institutions to take care of them. And what we've created are very, you know, from my perspective, a very kind of predatorial system. Yeah. And we're breaking down the families. So yeah. it, when I grew up in the forties and fifties, yeah. mother was primarily at home. Right. Now mother has to work to make ends meet. Right. And then of course the number of divorces and single motherhood and single fatherhood yeah. has weakened that unit. Right. So the, the children are more dependent on, on the schools and other institutions to pick up the slack, which they're not really doing. They're, and they'll tell you, well, we're overcrowded, blah, blah, blah. But as a society, these are the kinds of things we have to figure out. Yeah. Like, it has to be, for lack of a better way of saying it, decentralized in a way that you're going to need more teachers and more space for people to work. Yeah. Well, I think we could have a broad-reaching conversation about all of the, you know, the, the context of our sort of cultural inadequacy in terms of meeting people's even basic needs, let alone their spiritual needs. You know, for me, this story um, is very intimate in that it comes down to, you know, a monk that is on his path and is quite sort of self-fulfilled. And then nature, you know, through no 
pre-planning or strategy, nature presents him with a very real situation where a young woman presents herself in front of him and, and basically says, I need you. And he responds, um, you know, and she sincerely does, apparently. Um, and then he responds by saying, okay, I will, I will That's right. to help you. And, who, and who's to say that part of his motivation, or maybe more than part of his motivation, was that here are three people mm. that have demonstrated the last three or four days waiting for the rain to end and the roads to dry, a very deep interest right. in what he'd been preparing himself right. uh, for for years. Right. And here's an opportunity. Right. Like, wh why do you do the training to save all beings? Here they are. Right. Are, are you going to walk the talk now, or are you going to go off in, in the mountains and right. pretend like you didn't hear them? Right. It's, it's, a, it's a really catch-22. And it's not wrong for those two monks to have gone off. Clearly, they weren't ready to do more than that, and right. they, they didn't see the same opportunity. Yeah, you know, and I, they also weren't asked. You know, it reminds but what me, if they said, excuse me, but what yeah. if they said, how about if we all stay here and live as a small spiritual community? Oh, yeah. You can marry uh, your wife and Mr. Mr. and Mrs. No Resentment. Uh, the six of us can live comfortably. We can su easily yeah. support six people. All the benefits of yeah. living in a small community. Yeah, I appreciate you opening it up like that. It's really creative. and Yeah, why not, right? Absolutely. But again, you brought up the whole, you know, they're very conventional and they had not yet gotten to the point where they could even imagine that being okay. Yeah, they tried to talk all out of it. I mean, that's even worse because, right. and you could make the argument that they were attached to the three of them being these special people off in the mountains training very hard in right. samadhi, and suddenly one breaks free of that, yeah. and and they're like, wait, wait a minute, instead of saying, I think this is wonderful. Yeah. And maybe they did after... Yeah. You know, after they finally let go of the idea he wasn't going to go, maybe they did say, "Well, please have a wonderful marriage." Or they could have said, "How about if, if we marry you? Yeah, we perform the ceremony." Yeah. There's all kinds of things that a mind that's free to 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 utilize what's at hand yeah. uh, can operate. Well, thank you, Sonu. You know, it, this, this I don't know, maybe ten or fifteen years ago. Um, one of the first times that I went to, you know, Sudoksa and saw where you had trained, and uh, before I got ordained there, you introduced me to one of your Dharma brothers, and um, I remember, you know, asking him, he was kind of sharing teachings, and uh, I asked him for advice, um, and because I was going to become a monk and he said well just remember that as a monk you never go where you're not invited mm. and but if someone gives you an invitation be very careful before you turn it down mm -hmm. and I well that, that would was, be the perfect situation yeah, so oh yeah what a what a rich story and um yeah okay so thank you for your time and your thoughts